Good morning again. In our <clears throat> sermon today, we are continuing in chapter 3. We are going, last week we looked at verses 5 through 11, which is where Paul, he, in this chapter, he's talking about taking off the old self and putting on the new self. And we talked last week about how the new self looks like Jesus. There's only one new self available, and it's Jesus. And last week, we went over in, in that passage, Paul, I don't, there's my clicker. Uh, in that passage, Paul focuses on the things that we need to take off. And in today's passage, he focuses on the things that we need to put on. And so we're going to be delving into the positive attributes that we need to take on in order to be Christians, in order to, be, to look like Christ. But what I want to do today is I want to develop, last week I think I mentioned Paul isn't giving us itemized lists. The, six, or the five or six things that he gives us is not a, a checklist. If you check off these six, then you're done, and you're not done until you've mastered these six. These are really more like six brush strokes in a picture that he's painting for us of what it means to look like Jesus. And so the, I want to delve behind that and look at the picture that is being painted. But first, we're going to read the passage and so I encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, to open them to Colossians 3 throughout the sermon. And uh, if you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against one another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule in your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. As a pastor, I have several times walked with people through chronic illness for which they could not get a diagnosis. It is a very difficult path to walk to not know what is afflicting you. And I have done this enough that I have seen it go several different ways. I've seen it to this day not get diagnosed. And then I have seen it get diagnosed in ways that were treatable and ways that were not. And what I have observed is that even when the diagnosis turned out to be untreatable, it was a relief to have the problem diagnosed. It was a relief to finally know what the problem actually was. Now, of course, the best possible answer is to find out what it is and then know that you can fix it, right? That it can be healed. And personally, I, I've realized that I've been on a journey similar to that. Um, and, and it's very important to me that we as Christians properly diagnose the problem with humanity, the problem with us. And that's one of the big things that Paul is delving into. And so if I, if I have been repeating 
this theme that I'm going to talk about. We're going to talk about mortality. If I've been repeating this a lot, the reason is because what I see is that this is in scripture and in psychology and just in life, that the problem of death really is the thing that needs to be addressed in ways that we don't realize because we live in a culture that is so insulated from death. You know, for most of human history, by the time you were about 18, if you were a man, you had dug a grave for someone that you knew. And if you were a woman, you had been a hospice nurse for someone that you knew. We are insulated from it, and so we don't realize the effect that this has on us. But really, it is central to what Paul is talking about, and it is no less true for us today who are insulated from death than from the majority of human beings for whom death has always been right in the face, right in their face. And so today what I want to do to kind of revisit this, because I've been mentioning it in previous sermons, I'm going to read you two passages. The first one is, to support the first point I'm going to make, is from Richard Beck. He is a professor of psychology at um, Abilene Christian University. And he is talking about something called neurotic anxiety, which you've heard me discuss before. So the fear of death, there's two levels to it. There's the fear that you think of, which is, I'm afraid of dying. It's why I panic when I struggle to swim. You know, it's, it's, I'm afraid that this thing in front of me that's happening now might cause me to die. That's one level. That's basic anxiety. But then the thing about human beings is that we realize that no matter what, you're going to die. It's going to happen eventually. And so we develop this next level called neurotic anxiety, which is, it makes us anxious about finding meaning in a life that is limited. I'm going to die, and, and that brings the danger of being forgotten and my life being meaningless, and so we want to address that, and that's where neurotic anxiety comes from. So this is a psychologist talking about the way the fear of death affects our everyday living. He says, neurotic anxiety is characterized by worries, fears, and apprehensions associated with our self-concept, much of, what is, much of which is driven by how we compare ourselves to those in our social world. Feelings of insecurity, low self-esteem, obsessions, perfectionism, ambitiousness, envy, narcissism, jealousy, rivalry, competitiveness, self-consciousness, guilt, and shame are all examples of neurotic anxiety, and they all relate to how we evaluate ourselves in our own eyes and in the eyes of others. Perhaps we worry about weighing too much, or we feel insecure for not making as much money as our neighbors. On the flip side, feelings of superiority, contempt, and pride are also forms of neurotic anxiety. In short, neurotic anxiety sits at the root of our experience of self-esteem, the motive force behind our vigilant monitoring of how we compare to others and to cultural standards, for good or ill. When we realize that we're mortal, what it means is that we're not in control of our own significance. And so the only way I can know that my life matters is if it mattered to other people. And that means I have to please other people. I have to look good in other people's eyes. And you see how this this competitive mentality comes in as soon as we realize that we're mortal. And it instills in us this fear. Um, It's a fear that we will, mortality makes us fear being unwanted, unneeded, and unloved. We're afraid of all of those things because whether we're wanted, whether we're needed, and whether we're loved has a direct bearing on whether we feel like our life matters. And so that fear of being unwanted, unneeded, and unloved, that causes us to behave in certain ways. And the ways that he calls out in his 
passage is insecurity, envy, self-consciousness, low self-esteem, narcissism, guilt, obsessions, jealousy, superiority, perfectionism, rivalry, contempt, ambitiousness, competitiveness, and pride. You see that broad range of ways that we treat other people. How many of these problems are rooted in this fear that we have? And I'll tell you what it looks like for me. And I've had conversations with people about this. Recently, I've noticed in myself that I have this irrational, what's proven to be irrational fear that I am one mistake away from ruining relationships in my life. I am one mistake away from ruining a friendship. I am one mistake away from ruining my marriage. I'm one mistake away from losing the respect of the elders. I'm one mistake away from losing the respect of my subordinates. I'm one mistake away from losing my relationship. With, you know, I, I'm, I'm afraid that if, if I make one more mistake, then people will lose respect for me will, or I will lose something, right? And that mentality does two things. Number one, it makes me desperate to either not make mistakes or to not have any of my mistakes known. I become super defensive. I take any kind of, of criticism or correction as an attack because it's important to me that I not make mistakes, right? And, and I just get very, all kinds of overreactions come out of that mentality, that feeling like, uh, you know, if I make a mistake, then I'm gonna be abandoned. I'm gonna not be loved. I'm not gonna be needed. You know, people aren't gonna like me, right? The other thing that happens is then I flip the coin around. I assume that for everyone else, I'm one mistake away from rejection, from being judged by them. That means that I then assume that I'm supposed to judge other people by the same standard. And so then I all of a sudden have a very short fuse for other people because I'm one mistake away, so so are they. I lose patience with people because, hey, you should be able to get this. We're all expected to get this. We're all expected to perform at this level. I, and and it, I actually make it real for other people. Now, here's the thing. I don't know, and it might be different from person to person, which comes first, my expectations of other people and my feeling those expectations on myself. I can tell that they're linked because as I realize that those are not the expectations of myself, it has helped me to not expect that of other people. But what ends up happening in this mentality where we're afraid of being unloved and unwanted and unneeded is that we get this really competitive, keeping score kind of mindset. And we get very anxious and neurotic about our relationships. And it's one of the things about tragedy, like tragedy, the definition of, classical definition of tragedy is when you end up doing things wrong, um, like you, your attempt to avoid something is exactly what causes you to fall into that problem, right? Like our attempt to avoid being rejected is why we end up doing things to people that cause our rejection, right? Like our attempt to avoid destroying relationships causes us to destroy relationships. That's the neurotic side of it. And this is all tied in with our mortality. But it's not just a psychological thing either. It's also a theological thing because that fear is then at the, when we view it as Christians, not just as psychologists, what we would say is that fear is at the root of all of our selfishness, sin, and conflict. If you look at those, that list that he gave us, we would consider that generally a list of sins. That would be the Christian word that we have for them. So I want to read you, this is another quote, this is from a, an Eastern Orthodox theologian named John Romanides, and it's a bit longer, but it's powerful if, if I can bring out the things that hit me. So I want you to listen to what he says. He says, If man was created for a life of complete selfless love, 
whereby his actions would always be directed outward toward God and neighbor and never toward himself, whereby he would be the perfect image and likeness of God, then it is obvious that the power of death and corruption has now made it impossible to live such a life of perfection. As Christians, we believe that we were designed to be focused on other people, not to be selfish. That, is, if, that bearing God's image means that we love others, that we serve others, that we're selfless, right? We believe that that's what human beings were made for. And being mortal means that we cannot achieve that. He says, the power of death in the universe has brought with it the will for self-preservation, fear, and anxiety, which in turn are the root causes of self-assertion, egoism, hatred, envy, and the like. Because man is afraid of becoming meaningless, he is constantly endeavoring to prove to himself and others that he is worth something. He thirsts after compliments and is afraid of insults. He seeks his own success and is jealous of the successes of others. He likes those who like him, and he hates those who hate him. He either seeks security and happiness in wealth, glory, and bodily pleasures, or he imagines that his destiny is to be happy in the possession of the presence of God in an individualistic sense, and is inclined to mistake, this is important, inclined to mistake his desire for self-satisfaction and happiness as his normal destiny. Right? We're inclined to think that being happy and being self-satisfied is actually the goal, is our destiny. On the other hand, he can become zealous over vague ideological principles of love for humanity and yet hate his closest neighbors. These are the works of the flesh of which St. Paul speaks. Underlying every movement of what the world has come to regard as normal man is the quest for security and happiness. But such desires are not normal. They are the consequences of perversion by death and corruption through which the devil pervades all of creation, dividing and destroying. So what death does is it it immediately causes us to be selfish, to care about getting what we can in this limited life. And that is not how we were designed to work. Our destiny is not to be happy and fulfilled. That's not the goal. That will, that will be accomplished as we pursue God, but that is not the goal. The goal is much bigger than that. And so our mortality is the problem that needs to be addressed. Paul reiterates this in, chapter, in Romans 7. He says, we, uh, oh, oh, let me skip forward. I meant to cut that. Um, I discovered this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with, with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. I want to do what's right, but I find it's a law that instead my flesh, which for Paul means his mortality, pulls him to do the wrong thing. That's why he says, what a wretched man am I? Who will rescue me from this body of death? This is the problem that Jesus Christ came to solve. And he solved it, first and foremost, by bringing us immortality, right? By bringing us redemption from all the horrible things we've done in the name of chasing immortality and actually giving us immortality. But it's not just, you'll live forever, now you're fixed. It's that immortality and that eternal life, it changes the story about who we are. Because uh, it's interesting, Gary's 
communion meditation set me up perfectly to talk about this, that um, Paul begins this section by reminding the Colossians of what the gospel says about who they are. This is putting the Colossians in the chair to hear what God says about them. He says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. He says, remember, first and foremost, as you decide how you're going to live in this world, remember that rather, being, rather than being unwanted, unneeded, unloved, you are God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. That's where we start from. Everything that death tells you about who you are, the gospel says the opposite. So in Christ, we are chosen. We are set apart. That's what holy means. Holy means you are set apart for a purpose, and that purpose is representing God. And dearly loved. Now that word for dearly loved, it means love, but it also carries with it family connotations. It kind of means being adopted into a loving family is the implication. So who you are is you are chosen by God, you are set apart, and you are dearly loved. Now, why are you chosen, set apart, dearly loved? Now, one of the common ways that people will tell this is to say that long before anything was created, God just decided he chose these people and not these people. That's not what he's saying. The reason he says you are chosen, set apart, and dearly loved is because he just said that you are in Christ. And you know what you can say about Christ? Christ is chosen set apart, and dearly loved. In fact, the New Testament repeatedly says those things about Jesus. So you don't have to justify why you're chosen. You're chosen because you're in Christ. And all people are invited into Christ. You are set apart because you're in Christ. That means you have a purpose. You have a mission. You have a function. No matter what your physical abilities, no matter what your circumstances, you have a purpose in this world, and you are dearly loved. God loves you as dearly as he loves Jesus. So that's who you are. And that's what needs to form the foundation for how you behave. My wife and I were talking about this last night that we've received parenting advice that told us that um, your kids will be what you tell them they are. If you tell your kids that they're worthless, if you tell your, or if you tell your kids that they're worth a lot, if you tell your kids that the, the specific example is if you tell them that they're patient, you may find that they actually become patient. It changes their expectations of themselves. And in fact, there are some traditions in Christianity that will say that there is an essential step to becoming a Christian. Like you have not converted until you've had that moment of feeling worthless before God. That your self-image has to be rooted in worthlessness. What my concern there is that then we'll always feel worthless. And we won't have a sense that we have something to do in this world. But what Paul wants people to know about who they are is they are chosen, set apart, and dearly loved. And what that means is that by the choice of God, you are set up as a person who can be like Christ. Don't focus on your worthlessness. Focus on your worth because your worth Worth doesn't come actually from the quality of an object. It comes from what people are willing to pay for it, right? That's why, that's why worth changes. That's why the stock market goes up and down. It's not measuring like, the, the, like when gold goes up and down, the quality of the gold hasn't changed. It's how much people will pay for the gold has changed. So are you worthless if the creator of the universe will give his son for you? 
even if you are sinful and corrupt. You are worth everything from God. And because you are worth that, God makes you capable of reflecting his son. And now we look at what that picture is supposed to be. As God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if any has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now I want you to look at the attributes that Paul has put up here. Compassion means caring about the suffering of other people, being affected by the suffering of other people. Kindness means sensitivity to the needs of others. Actually, um, you know, if, if somebody has sensitive ears, you talk quieter, even if you're a normally a loud talker. Like, you, you address the needs of the person that you're interacting with. Humility means rejecting the desire for glory or attention. Gentleness is a willingness to make allowances for others. Patience is being willing to endure wrongs and insults. Long-suffering. It's not, turning the other cheek is a very, uh, it's a description of patience. You can let yourself get slapped and you won't fight back. Forbearance, bearing with each other, means that you will stick with people who annoy or provoke you. Forgiveness means letting go of grievances and feuds. And love, broadly speaking, is a commitment to seeking the good of another person. Now, my first observation about all this is it is the complete opposite of the behaviors that the fear of death provoke in us. Right? It is the complete opposite. That's why Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that they'd give up their life for another person. Right? That, that these attributes, what it means to be like Christ, is living a life free from the fear of death. Free from the fear of what death says about you. That you can bear with insults because ultimately your worth doesn't come down to what other people say about you. That you can forgive people because you don't need to win your relationships with others. All of these require us to set ourselves aside and focus on the other, which is the exact opposite of what death drives us to do. Notice also that all of these have to do with our relationships with each other. When Paul says, he says, put on love, the phrasing he uses is actually like, put love on as the overcoat or the, the thing that draws the whole outfit together, right? Kind of, that's part of it, put it on over it. But when he says it draws it all together in unity, he's not saying it draws the virtues together in unity. He's saying it draws the congregation together in unity. He's referring to that group of people that we talked about last week that includes Jews and Gentiles, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, city, and slave or free. All of these attributes are attributes that keep a community together. Because the interesting thing is, Paul is telling us to put on our new selves, but you don't put on your new self and then go your own way. Your new, putting on the new self is not about, not about being alone. Because everything Paul says about it is about being in a collective, being in a community with other people. And I want you to think about what it would be like to have a community like this. Because unfortunately, churches are, we are still uh, in danger of forming ourselves around the fear of death, around wanting to get our own way. 
If I read books on how to grow a church, very often it will be, you know, here's how to choose the music that will attract the most people. Here's how to preach the sermons that will attract the most people. Here's how to structure the children's program that will attract the most people. Here's how to put on the children's pro- or the events that will attract the most people. And I do think we should be doing things to stay in touch with our community and to be able to effectively minister to them. But the problem is that, I, I forget who said this, so, hi, uh, you know, um, anonymous credit to whoever said it, it wasn't me. What you win them with is what you win them to. If we're a church that's drawn together because we all like music, the same music, or we all like the same preaching, or we all like this particular thing, we're not really a church. We're, we're a music club or a preaching club because what makes us a church is being united around Jesus. And so one of the reasons why I will resist reading those books is because I don't want to build a church that has to play a certain kind of music to stay together. I don't want to build a church that has to preach a certain type of sermon in order to stay together. I don't want to be one bad sermon away from a church split. Right? I don't want us to be a church where we have to do things one particular way to stay together. We're not supposed to be united around anything but Jesus. And you know what? Jesus can be praised through music you don't like. Jesus can be praised through sermons you didn't understand. Jesus can be praised through, in fact, I would say that that participating in music you don't like is is in a way a more powerful way of praising God and of, of recognizing his lordship because you're bearing with others, right? We are supposed to be a community that is built around Jesus Christ And therefore, we have compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and forgiveness and love. That's who we're called to be. And it is a battle because we all still live in this mortal world. But I really appreciate being a part of a congregation that has that as a goal. Because it's not just me. I've talked to you about what I think, but this church isn't about what I think. And this is who we are as a congregation and what we pursue. But that's ultimately what we need to be in order to be a church, is we need to be united around Christ. Paul says, Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule in your hearts. And be thankful. Notice, love and peace are both about being one body. That's the goal of this, is the community it creates. So therefore, because you are all of these things, you are loved and chosen and set apart, you can be the kind of community that God has called us to be. Therefore, we can be a radically different community built on grace instead of fear. What would it be like to have a community you were a part of where you knew for a fact that you were never one mistake away from rejection? Where you knew that you could confess your faults without being rejected. Where you knew that you could be honest. Where you knew that people would bear with you. Where you knew that people would forgive you. And if you knew those things about your community, how would it change the way you participated in that community? Would it be harder for you to hold grudges if you lived in a community that, it was, that you knew was constantly forgiving others? How different could we be if we did this perfectly? How different would this gathering of people feel than every other gathering you can go to 
in our world. I mean, uh, you know, like going to games or classes or every other thing that draws people together. How different would we feel than Congress, right? Because we are a kind of community that is united in that way. And it's really interesting to me the example that Paul uses for us to learn from. Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Paul turns to singing. He says, let the word of Christ, that's this news about Jesus, dwell in you. And the way you can do that is by teaching and admonishing one another. Notice he's not talking to me about teaching and admonishing you. He's talking to us about teaching and admonishing others through hymns, uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, why does he use that list? This is something very interesting I learned this week. Okay, the Greek words here are psalmos for psalms. Humnos for hymns, and odais for songs, okay? Now, those words, sometimes I've seen, you know, different commentaries will try and differentiate between these three songs, and most of them can't really figure out what the difference is between They're not talking about three different kinds of songs. He's referencing the Old Testament where these three words are used together. Now, if you turn to Psalm 67 or 76, and you look at the title that's actually part of the text. The psalm has always said, Psalm 67 has always said, for the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. Guess when they translate into Greek, guess what word they used for stringed instruments? Who knows? Which means that this is where Paul says we should use stringed instruments in worship. So Paul was pro-guitar. Then he says, psalmos for psalm and odice for song. There are two psalms that are described in the Greek Old Testament as a hymn, a psalm, a song. And they both have the same theme. I'm going to read you Psalm 67. It's a short one. May God be gracious to us and bless us. May he make his face shine upon us so that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations rejoice and shout for joy, for you judge the peoples with fairness and lead the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has produced its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. The theme of that psalm is it's two sides, the generosity of God that leads to the uniting of the nations. The generosity of God that leads to the reuniting of the nations. It's exactly what Paul has been talking about. Psalm 76, which is the only other place in the Old Testament that has those three terms together, has this similar theme. What Paul seems to be emphasizing here is both the form of singing and the content of the songs that both underline God-given harmony. We can learn this grace by singing together because when we sing together, you get a, a tangible expression of the unity of the church. When we sing together, there are different parts, different types of voices, different levels of skill and talent, different levels of experience, and yet together, that singing is a beautiful sound, right? And it is, a, it is beautiful because of the expression of unity that it creates. 
And so both in the form of the way you're singing, and then also, in this case, the message of the Psalms that he's talking about, we learn what it means to be a family together. It's one of the, reasons, one of the many reasons why gathering together is so important. Because this is, this, this is important on its own, but it's also practice for being a family out there. It's practice for how you treat each other in your Bible studies. It's practice for how you treat each other in the last shift of the no trunks, all treats. When, you know, we're running out of candy and every, you know, things are going every which way. How do we speak to each other? How do we live with, how do we think about each other? How do we react when a, when a brother or sister says something we disagree with on Facebook? All these kinds of things, this singing together, this worshiping together, this being together, among many other things, trains us for what we're supposed to be like in every other situation. We are supposed to continue in harmony. We're supposed to continue in unity. And we're able to do that because we have been freed from death. We've been freed from the fear of what death might say about us. Because no matter what happens, no matter when you die, no matter how you die, no matter what you get done before you die, you are loved, you are needed, you are set apart by God for a purpose. And you are going to live into that purpose for eternity. And that changes the math. 200 years into eternity, how will you wish you had spent your life on this side of glory? We'll be building this kind of community. Now, this is a big, a big ask. There's a lot going on here. And, and so Paul draws it together in a simple conclusion. He says, Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the first part, if you, if you forget everything else I said, if it all disappears in your mind, remember this, okay? First of all, do everything you do in the name of Christ. And if there are things that you do that you have a hard time, how could I possibly do that in, in the name of Christ? Maybe don't do them. Because this summarizes the mission to look like Jesus. Unfortunately, as cliche as it got to be for my generation, the operative question really is, what would Jesus do? Because the point isn't to remember the itemized list, but the point is to pursue that image of Jesus. So even if you forget, if I quiz you next week, what were the five things you don't know, what you need to know is look like Jesus, number one. And the second thing is be grateful. Because one of the things that I haven't mentioned yet is that Paul's consistent, repeated theme throughout this is gratitude. Notice he says, Let the peace of Christ to which you were all called in one body rule in your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and you know, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And finally, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. Gratitude as a perspective is life-changing because gratitude is what pulls us mentally out of the fear of death. Practicing gratitude is what reminds you of what you've been given because it's easy for us to forget that we've been given eternal life, to forget that we've been given love and purpose in God because we, and, and just to focus in front of us that, that make us afraid. Gratitude is an exercise in intentionally pulling your gaze from the obstacles 
to the grace that God has given you. That is how you get out of the fear of death. That is how you get out of the mental fear of death. Because you remember what God has given you. You can remember in this moment, why am I losing my temper here? Why am I acting in a way that Jesus wouldn't act? It's because I'm afraid. It's because I'm afraid of losing this thing, and I've forgotten what God has actually given me. And when I weigh this thing that I'm afraid of losing against what God has given me, I realize that's not worth fighting over. This internet debate is not worth having. This thing is not worth squabbling over because of what I have been given. So gratitude is absolutely essential to us having a true vision of who we are and what we're called to do. So, do everything in the name of Jesus and be grateful. That's the key, right? So as we close, I'm going to ask you, to consider some questions. First of all, have you let yourself be chosen, set apart, and dearly loved by God? Because the thing is, God wants every person. Scripture says that it is not his will that any should perish, okay? So there's nobody that God says, eh, I don't need them. I, I, I could do without them. He wants every person. What's, what needs to happen is for you to let yourself be chosen, set apart, and loved by God. You need to let yourself be be put into Christ. God wants to perform the surgery on you, but you have to sign the consent form. If you haven't done that, today is the best day for you to take your place in Christ. If you have done that, then let me ask you, is your behavior governed by fear or grace? Do you find yourself getting sucked into fear of losing things, of losing respect? Do you get pulled into that fear-based mentality, or are you able to hold things with an open hand because you live in the grace of God? For everybody, our answer is somewhere in between. We're working on moving towards the grace side. What would it take for you to live more in grace and less in fear? And finally, are you practicing gratitude? Because gratitude is how you move from fear to grace. So my challenge to you would be to move into this next week consciously adopting an attitude, oh, I'm going to do the rhyme, of gratitude. Consciously be grateful and see what it changes in you. Amen? We invite the praise team to come up. And I'm going to tell you that if you have made a decision that you uh, want to act on through the church, we have our cards that are in the seatbacks in front of you. The Connect card is a way that you can get, uh, if you want to give your life to Christ, get baptized, or find out more about becoming a member of the church, that's what the red card is for. If you want to find out more about what it means to grow as a Christian and be part of a group of Christians growing together, that's what the green card is for. And if you're interested in giving back and serving others through the church, that's what the blue card is for. You can fill one of those out and hand them to me or put them in one of the boxes in the back. I encourage you to consider what it is that God is putting on your heart as we stand and sing our final song. Please stand and join us.